So I want to take just one moment and I want to transport us all to Sinai in ancient times. And if you remember your Torah, the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, the Israelites, they were kvetching, they were complaining. It's hot, we're thirsty, we're hungry, we never should have left Egypt. What's this land of Canaan, milk and honey? We don't get it. You know what? They didn't agree then, and they're not agreeing now. So in the context of uh, Hebrew scriptures, the number seven is rather significant. So a few brief thoughts on years ending in seven. So 1897, 120 years ago today, the World Zionist Congress debated, should we go to that place, Palestine? Fortunately, Theodore Herzl won out. 1917, 100 years ago, the Balfour Declaration and the British government announced that there should be a Jewish state in Palestine that respects the rights of all people in the land. 1947, 70 years ago, the UN partition take took place and it called for a Jewish and an Arab state. In 1967, 50 years ago, we celebrated the reunification of Jerusalem, the start of the Six-Day War, and you know what? And there's still debate and questions on defensive and preemptive military action that Israel's taking against terrorists or to defend itself. And finally, in 1977, 40 years ago, President Anwar Sadat visited Israel and it began a process of land for peace, which has continued, it start and it stopped. So in 2017, really nothing's changed, yet everything's changed. So my last comments really have to do with the goal here tonight, which is to have a meaningful conversation across a broad range of issues. So tonight, you're going to hear perspectives from our two very esteemed speakers. Each of them are going to have their own perspectives. And guess what? All of you are going to have your own perspectives. But one of the strengths of the Jewish people is that we've always had a wide range of views and thoughts. So while Danielle and Larry may agree on some issues and disagree on others, I ask that you hold any applause or any other comments that you may make or reactions so that we can respect our speakers and the audience. We've got a lot of ground to cover. We want to save time at the end for written questions. So please, it's never too soon. Start filling out your written question cards now. Um, so with that, we hope that you leave here with a deeper appreciation for Israel and understand some of the issues more deeply than we read in the headlines or the other news. So whatever your political persuasion, my hope is that after this evening, you realize there's more that connects us about Israel than should ever divide us. So with that, we're going to go on a little journey, and we're going to start our journey with talking about Israel and domestic policies. And with that, um, it wasn't really a coin flip, but uh, it was agreed that uh, Larry is going to start us off. Well, good evening. Thank you very much, Rick, and that was a beautiful introduction. Thank you, KI, for hosting us. I'm happy to be back. It's nice to be in Pacific Palisades. Uh, just east on Sunset is Will Rogers State Park. Just west at the beach is Will Rogers State Beach. Will Rogers was America's most beloved political commentator. And my favorite quip of his is, when the Okies left Oklahoma and came to California, it raised the IQ of both states. Mm. 
I think tonight is the eighth and final night of Shiva for the Dodgers. <laughs> so I want to begin with an area of mostly agreement. I don't know if Danielle is a Dodger fan, but a lot of us are. She's from Miami originally. Uh, a quick story. Sandy Koufax, you may know, in 1965, saw that the first game of the World Series fell on Yom Kippur. To honor his holiday, he asked his fellow star pitcher, righty Don Drysdale, if he would switch spots in the rotation. Drysdale said, of course. Koufax was a little surprised that this made him a patriarch of the Jewish people. Nevertheless, Drysdale took the mound and gave up seven earned runs in two and two-thirds innings. But he had a sly smile on his face when skipper Walter Alston approached the mound, and Drysdale said, I bet you wish I was Jewish today, too. <laughs> so, I don't know that everybody's Jewish here, but I think we get the point. Yes. Um, there are six million Jews in the United States, but there are tens of millions of Christians who are also passionate about Israel and without whose support and prayers maybe Israel would not have survived and thrived. I'm very moved by the fact that Israel is the only place in the Middle East where Christians feel safe tonight. So that's on my mind for any guests here who are not Jewish. For many Jews and Christians, Israel refers to a specific tiny land known as the Holy Land, Eretz Yisrael, the Promised Land. Israel's destiny is found in our text, the only text I'll quote tonight. God said to Avraham, Go to the land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. You shall become a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, curse those who curse you, and all the families of the earth will be blessed through you. The Holy Land is the site of our forefathers and mothers, our covenant with God, our kingdom of Israel, site of the holy temples in Jerusalem and twice their destruction, source of diaspora prayer for 2,000 years, and refuge and rescue from persecution as the modern state. Israel guards the religious rights of the three and other great religions. Israel is now home to more than 50% of world Jewry for the first time. Quite a remarkable journey summarized in the Israeli national anthem. As long as the Jewish spirit is yearning deep in the heart, with eyes turned toward the east, looking toward Zion, then our hope, the 2,000-year-old hope, will not be lost. To be a free people in our land the land of Zion and Jerusalem. Of course, there's a secular dream of Israel as well. Israeli writer Amos Oz asserted, Zionism is the most healing and healthy idea of the Jewish people in 2,000 years. Early Zionists, be they orthodox or secular, disagreed on what the Jewish state would look like, but they all agreed that building this state offered relief from an unrelenting lack of acceptance of full political rights. Paul Hilberg's 1961 book, Destruction of European Jewry, noted how some in the early Christian churches in Europe proclaimed, you have no right to live among us as Jews. 
Later, many secular rulers proclaimed, you have no right to live among us. And finally, the Nazis declared, you have no right to live at all. The word Israel means struggle with God. Nothing was ever meant to come easy, apparently. Israel reflects so many struggles, nuances, distinctions. Isn't that the way we all are inside our own souls as well? We are a disagreeing, difficult people. At least in Israel, there's a promise of sovereignty or control of our own destiny. The two leaders at the founding of modern Israel were David Ben-Gurion and Zev Jabotinsky. Ben-Gurion was from Poland. He was a Jewish nationalist and socialist, founder of Israel's Labor Party, and leader of secular Israel. He was willing to compromise with the religious community to gain their support for independence. Ben-Gurion promoted a new kind of Jew, proud, independent, and living off the land. Essentially, Ben-Gurion was Israel's modern founding father, part George Washington, part Abraham Lincoln. He sought to achieve and then keep statehood and union. Jabotinsky was from Russia, a defender of Jewish ideas and interests and sovereignty. He was the forefather of Begin and Shamir and Arendz and Israel's Likud party of today. He promoted Jewish pride, religious liberty in Russia and then throughout Europe, and he identified with the middle class. He created the Jewish military brigades and the Irgun, which became the beginning of the IDF. He was both a nationalist and a classic liberal, affirming individual liberty and proclaiming every man is a king. He championed the free press, by the way, the rights of minorities, and a free market with a safety net. Fifty-seven streets, parks, and squares are named after Jabotinsky more than any other person in Jewish or Israeli history. So I conclude by laying out for further conversation two internal modern debates which were seeds were planted long ago. The first is the religious-secular divide. I referenced the deal between Ben-Gurion and Rav Kook, wherein the religious community secured special status over marriage, divorce, conversion, burial, and citizenship. Many Jews, including myself, have moderate views on intermarriage, egalitarian prayer, Sabbath observance. We can talk about that. The second um, debate is the same one we have in this country, socialism versus free market democratic capitalism. Ben-Gurion, the first prime minister, was a socialist. He proclaimed from class to nation. He returned to his kibbutz at the end of his political career. Israel's current and longest serving prime minister cut his teeth as a friend of Mitt Romney of Bain Capital and has promoted over many, many years Startup Nation, a successful Israel whose achievements and wealth creation has enabled Israel to become a donor nation with miraculous contributions, humanitarian aid, doctors of uh, 
save uh, a heart in Africa, um, the chip in your cell phone. I was the director for a brief while of the Israel Cancer Research Fund. Israel's Nobel Prize winners created Gleevec and Doxel and Velcade cancer therapies which make a big difference in our world today. So I leave it there. Those are the two debates that I think remain. First of all, I want to say thank you so much for having me tonight. I'm so excited to be here, not only because I've been hearing about this community uh, for the last 10 years since I moved to Los Angeles, but because I've been hearing about your amazing rabbi. Um, she has a wonderful reputation in the community. And I have, I have a very quick, very embarrassing story to tell about my very first interaction with her, which is that I was so excited to meet her that I called her up one day to interview her for a column I was writing. Um, it had to do, it was about Sukkot and the time, season of love, and she was brilliant, and it remains one of my favorite holiday columns that I've ever written because it's mostly her wisdom in the column. And then um, I'm a journalist. I take facts and accuracy very seriously. And of course the column comes out and I got her name wrong in the column. <laughs> and I was absolutely mortified. And uh, my grandmother has this, uh, there's this famous saying, I don't know who said it, but my grandmother always says, she goes, I don't care what you say about me, just spell my name right. <laughs> okay, so I totally messed up on that. And I wrote her an email and I said, I'm so humiliated, I'm so embarrassed and I'm so sorry. And she was incredibly gracious about it. And I never forgot that because that was like a little tiny thing that could have been a big deal. And um, she was lovely. So thank you. And I'm sorry. And I apologize to you before your congregation. <laughs> On to Israel. So I was asked to begin by talking a little bit about Israeli culture and the current cultural climate in Israel, if you will. So... I want to start with the good news. We know the stories, of course, of the magnificent beaches of Tel Aviv, the discotheques, the gorgeous Israeli bodies, the amazing food scene, the world-renowned Israel Philharmonic, which was just here last week and I got to hear and was incredible, uh, the wondrous landscapes from the Negev to the Galilee, the bustling tourism industry, the magic of ancient Jerusalem with its historic sites and art galleries and concert venues and cinematech and the hummus. How can we forget the hummus? There's so much hummus in Israel. You could fill the Mediterranean with it and take a swim. All of these things we know. But there's a lot more to Israeli culture than what many of us might think. For example, did you know that Tel Aviv was recently crowned the, quote, vegan capital of the world? Not kidding. There are 400 vegan and vegetarian-friendly restaurants now in Tel Aviv. Um, and how many in here have seen the hit show on Netflix called Fauda. Show of hands. Okay, not too many. So anyone who hasn't seen it, you should go home tonight when we're finished with this. And before you go to sleep, you should turn on an episode of Fauda. And then I promise you, you won't sleep tonight because you'll want to watch the entire season uh, before the sun rises. Um, so Fauda is a, a big hit show right now, but the truth is it's just one of many shows and concepts that were born and bred in Israel that have made their way to screens across, across the world. So Betty Poole became In Treatment, and Hatufim became Homeland, 
And now Fauda, which actually is premiering its second season in Los Angeles next week. And as I was thinking about this, uh, this kind of ascending relationship between the Israeli entertainment industry and the U.S. entertainment industry, to which we are all very close to because, of course, we live here in Los Angeles, I was thinking to myself, what's different about Fauda? And I'll tell you. You know that the Israeli market has made a big impact in the U.S. when they no longer have to change the show title to English. So, in fact, in a true sign of the times, Fauda not only retained its original name, which is Arabic for chaos, but it is filmed entirely in its original languages, which means... Um, so it's Hebrew and Arabic, which signals to us that Israeli cultural crossover is such well-trodden territory by now, with stories so expertly told, that English speakers are now willing to do something they absolutely hate and avoid at all costs, which is read subtitles. <laughs> exactly. Um, and don't get me started on the Israeli Wonder Woman, which to me is the best revenge in a world that is at many times hostile to Israeli culture, barring athletes from sporting events, engaging in cultural boycott of Israel art and artists. Here comes Gal Gadot, a woman who served in the Israeli army and discusses it openly to embody the heroine of the moment at a time of a massive outpouring about sexual assault and male abuse of power, who takes on a character originally conceived during World War II by William Moulton Marston to defeat the Nazis. So if that is not a beautiful irony of history and culture, I don't know what is. So by so many standards, we see that Israel is a startling success. In high tech, for example, Israel boasts a number of organizations that are training young Israelis and Arab Israelis together in collaboration for leadership roles in the country's future. Two that I'll just tell you off the top of my head, there's MUNA, which is an educational organization that actually operates out of a Muslim Arab village and is, happens to be ranked by the Israeli Bureau of Statistics as one of the lowest socioeconomic um, status uh, communities in all of Israel. And here they are bringing Jewish and Arab children together to work on projects for drones, robots, 3D printing, software and hardware development. There's also MEET, which is a partnership, again, of Israeli, uh, Israeli and Palestinian children, really brilliant. The bar is very high for these. It's in collaboration with the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT, and they are bringing, it's half Israeli, half Palestinian, half male, half female, and they're bringing them all together to work um, on collaborative technology projects. Why? Because the hope is that one day, when there is peace and there is a solution between these two people, that some people in the, in, the, in the country will have an experience of working together to draw upon. So that's very remarkable. Um, there's so many, and I don't want to go on and on forever, but I also want to talk, I want to mention Women Wage Peace, which tens of thousands of women, Arab, Israeli, Jewish, Muslim, Christian, Druze, 
secular religious that came together a year ago. They marched through the desert all the way to the Jordan River demanding an end to the conflict. And they have, they have put out a list of demands that uh, among them is a renewal of immediate n- negotiations and that they want women to be, have equal representation in these negotiations. Um, the bottom line is that Israeli civil society is booming. We, we have a joke here that, you know, whatever you need, there's an app for that. Well, in Israel, it seems that for every belief, passion, or purpose, there's an organization for that. Um, last spring, I profiled a young man named George Deke, who's the highest-ranking Arab-Israeli that serves in Israel's foreign service. In Israel, transgender individuals have been serving in the military since 1998. While the U.S. Congress counts about 19% of its members as women, the Israeli Knesset is comprised of 33 women MKs, which makes up 27% of Knesset. In addition, there are 18 non-Jewish members of the Knesset, for the first time, by the way, this just came out the other day, 11 Muslims, 5 Druze, and 2 Christians, and 2 who are openly gay serving in a religious country. Now I want to talk for a second about the bad. Thanks to Harvey Weinstein, now the whole world knows about a super shady organization of ex-Mossad agents called Black Cube, but let's put that aside for a moment. Um, Jerusalem is increasingly becoming a black hat city. There is a tremendous divide between religious and secular, and being in Tel Aviv and being in Jerusalem sometimes feels like being in two different countries. Uh, Secular Israelis and even secular Jews report feeling unwelcome sometimes in Jerusalem. Um, Israel is still legally and politically dominated by the ultra-Orthodox. Um, Ferraris, apparently, as of last week, have more rights at the Kotel than women do. Um, there was a big controversy last week because um, some group that is related to the company that makes Ferraris was doing a tour through Israel, and they parked like 10 Ferraris <laughs> right outside of the Kotel. There's some great pictures, which you should definitely check out. Um, so we'll talk about a lot of these things. We'll talk about the Kotel. Um, there's no, there remains no civil marriage in Israel. There are a group of women called Agunot who are literally chained to their husbands because you have to get a religious divorce, and it's fully up to the man to decide if he's going to grant a divorce to the woman. Um, so a lot of men don't do that, and these women are basically living in limbo, unable to move on with their lives. Um, And we'll talk about the prime minister and all the corruption scandals that he's mired in in a moment. Um, uh, There's a tremendous wealth gap in Israel. As much as Netanyahu has made incredible strides in building up the startup nation, it seems that echoing what's happening in the rest of the world, the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer. So it doesn't help everyone. Um, there's more stuff, but it's too depressing, so I'll stop here, and um, we'll move on. Okay, well, thank you. So uh, I think we all really enjoyed the uh, sort of synopsis, uh, well-stated historical perspective, and uh, Danielle, you did a great job summarizing culture and highlighting some of the issues. Now my job is really tough, so we're going to try and do some lightning rounds, if you can, on some of the most difficult issues of the day that we could spend an hour at least on each of these issues. But I want to pick up where you left off, which is on the economy. And this question's for either of you. So um, Israel last year was ranked by the U.S. News and World Report as the eighth most powerful country in the world, behind the five permanent U.N. Security Council members, France and Germany. So they're in pretty good standing. So how do we reconcile the success of Startup Nation 
with issues of inequality and loss of the founding socialist ideals. So I'll give you a breather. I'll go first. Um, Thank you. Quickly. It's a simple question. This is the lightning round. Lightning round. Look, I, Wait to I, hear the next two questions. I, I've been asked this same question we all have regarding America as well. Yeah. There's no country in the world that doesn't have a divide between the rich and the poor. Interestingly, socialist countries have the largest divide. KGB agent Vladimir Putin somehow made himself the richest man on the planet. So I work in wealth creation and management. And I'll just bluntly state, democratic capitalism is the best path to create a ladder up for the most number of people. And that includes Israel. And the standard of living has risen. To its great credit, Israel has a safety net. The United States has a safety net. Israel's is actually very robust, their safety net. It's true there's big economic disparity between tech gazillionaires and the average person, a Holocaust survivor, an immigrant from the Arab lands, a new um, uh, arrival from the former Soviet Union. I would like to just, uh, one paragraph and then I'll close. Rabbi Joseph Lischitz wrote about how our tradition is rooted in caring for the widow, the poor, and the orphan as a religious obligation on those with means, private charity, we're all familiar with that. But it is not favored in the Jewish tradition to be dependent and poor. It may be unlucky, it may be your status, but it's not favored, it's not honored. Better to disobey the Sabbath than to rely on handouts. So my answer to you is, bravo Israel for being startup nation and creating wealth, and bravo Israel for having a safety net. And I would simply ask every country in the world, what do you want to do about the disparity in wealth between rich and poor? That's not uniquely Israeli. Okay, so Danielle, so you can I'll just quickly jump, comment just on quickly. this. I can throw you another question Okay, too. great. So the quick thing I'll say is um, I don't obviously have a solution for how to solve the wealth gap in Israel, nor do I do here in this country. This is a problem that's afflicting globalized nations across the world. What I'll say that's remarkable about Israel is the following. The whole concept of startup nation is the idea that this was this little tiny sliver in the desert that had no natural resources. So it's the brain trust of the Israeli people that created resources from nothing that have now become some of the most coveted resources in the world in the industry that is now shaping our future. So kudos to Israel for realizing that they had to be innovators and creators because they didn't have what resources to rely upon. Okay. So um, now how do you ask the toughest questions and ask for answers in the shortest period of time? It's impossible, but Israel Matters will be back and we will tackle these things. So I want you, Danielle, to dig in a little deeper on religious pluralism. Share with us about the religious versus secular divide playing out in Israel. Issues we read about include Orthodox Jews, whether or not they should serve in the IDF, the role of women in society, which you touched on. Um, American Jews are also very concerned about issues of egalitarian prayer at the wall. That conversion issue is still out there. Who is a Jew? So what's the outlook for religious pluralism uh, in Israel? Right now, not good. 
Not good is the truth. I mean, I think you're seeing some innovation that's happening on a very small level where you're seeing kind of like startup communities religiously. So there are little, little things that are starting to percolate. But you just had a couple days ago, Natan Sharansky spoke before a committee um, and said, look, you put us on a six-month, you know, wait-and-see uh, they took like a, a rest period from dealing with the, the wall issue and creating this egalitarian prayer space. And so now it's been, you know, six months since June and Sharansky saying like, okay, like it's time, like, no, we have to do something about this. But we see obfuscation and at every turn. And I just, um, I'm not terribly optimistic about that at the moment because there, it's just a fact that the, because of the arrangement that was made that, that Larry talked about earlier where Ben-Gurion and Rob Cook, they were worried that after everything that had happened in the Holocaust and so much, um, so many great Jewish thinkers and <laughs> religious people and so much scholarship was wiped out that they wanted to ensure that that part of Judaism was going to be rehabilitated. So they made it so that for those who wanted to study in yeshiva and contribute to the continuity of, of Judaism, um, that that would be that they would be supported in doing that. Talk about a safety net. They are absorbing much of the safety net. In, so, in so Danielle, yes. you have an open invitation to come back. Okay. But I think on behalf of our Israel Matters Committee, all I can say is that this is an important issue to our congregation. It's an important issue to our senior rabbi. Yeah. Um, it's not worthy of the uh, sitting on one leg um, answer. We're going to dig in more. Um, before we continue this journey, um, Larry, I want to ask you what is actually another um, you know, difficult question that people have to deal with with respect to Israel. And that is to ask you to touch on the human rights issue because we're talking about domestic policies here. So human rights groups across the globe accuse Israel of ongoing abuses in its conflict with the Palestinians. And other groups are concerned about the rights and treatment of Israeli Arabs and other minority groups in Israel, including minority groups of Jews. So how does Israel balance these, the concerns of Jewish values of being a light unto the nation with everything else that they have to deal with? Fair. Um, in 60 seconds. So I honor that question. Sorry. Um, I'm a centrist on these particular questions. I endorse what Danielle said about religious pluralism. In 1967, after the victory, everybody came to the Western Wall. Everybody, religious or secular. It wasn't then a synagogue. There are 2,000 synagogues nearby. My personal opinion is I don't think the Western Wall should be a synagogue, and I think it should be there for everybody. So that's a private personal view. On the other hand, I don't use leverage when I disagree with Israel to beat up on Israel, withhold donations to Israel, campaign against Israel. You're not going to find me adding to the um, castigation of Israel. In fact, I would compliment Israel on human rights and on civil rights. Israel reached out and rescued black Ethiopians from Africa for the first time in history. Blacks were taken out of Africa to become free, not slaves. Israel said yes to one million Soviet Jews. An Arab beautiful woman was Miss Israel a couple years ago. There's an Arab gentleman on the Supreme Court of Israel. You can imagine in a nation full of Jews, there are quite a few Jewish lawyers and other activists campaigning for civil rights and human rights 
Israel doesn't lack for opportunities for citizens to make their case on these issues, including the issues of treatment of Palestinians and others at the border. And I would just say the San um, Diego-Mexican border is pretty placid. It's pretty quiet. Not a lot of human rights abuses we hear about because we're not at war with Mexico. But there is a war going on in the Middle East, and so it's not so easy for us to judge from, you know, America how Israel handles its security. I think Israel is sensitive to this issue. When claims come up, they go right through the court system, and the Supreme Court has ruled repeatedly against the government on behalf of those who are um, asserting their civil rights. So okay, I just, so, just um, want to – I, I got to just respond to that. Please. So I'm not going to disagree. I'm going to say yes and – there's no question Israel has an amazing record. Israel is, remains the only democracy in the Middle East. If you are a woman, if you are gay, you have right. If you are transgender, if you have rights um, in Israel that you would not have in any of their neighboring countries, it is safer for a gay Saudi Arabian to live in Israel than it would be to live as an openly gay person in Saudi Arabia. That is very significant and important. However, there are pretty egregious abuses of human rights that are going on, um, certainly as a result of the occupation. Um, this is not necessary. It's not true across the board. It doesn't mean every Israeli. No, the Israeli soldiers do amazing work and most of them are tremendous actors, but there are those that, that are not shining examples of what you would hope a soldier would be. And there are, there are, humiliating things that the Palestinians have to endure on an almost daily basis um, just because they are the vulnerable people in this situation. Um, So I think we have to acknowledge that, we have to recognize that, and also Arab Israelis can sometimes feel like second-class citizens in their own in, in their own country. I'll tell you one quick story. So this young man, George Deke, that I profiled, who is now like at the top. I mean, you can't you can't get higher than that if you're if you're Arab Israeli in Israel. I asked him like, do you have any ambitions to be prime minister? And I said to myself, oh my God, would that ever happen? But anyway, um, he told me that when he graduated from law school and he graduated top of his class, he sent out resumes to all the top law firms to get his first job. And time went by, time went by, time went by. He heard nothing, he heard nothing, he heard nothing. Then he started to notice that friends of his who were Jewish um, started to get callback for interviews that he had better test scores and he had better grades. And he was going, why are they getting invited to interview, but I'm not? And he actually did something that was pretty chutzpah dick, as we say. And he created a separate resume with his same uh, credentials, except he took off that he spoke Arabic, because, which made him actually less qualified, and he gave himself a Jewish name. And he got called back, and he got interviews. <clears throat> and he said to me at the time he was so upset he considered going to the press with it or whatever because he was really hurt by that, and he decided not to, and his career has, has, has been quite remarkable since then. But that's one tiny example. And this is for someone who's outstanding. So just imagine when you are poor and you have nothing and you are jobless and you have to cross a checkpoint. It's a very, very different story. There are never-ending stories. And there's only one journey. And we're moving on. (laughs) Uh, 
I hope our committee members are keeping track of all of this because um, there's a lot to cover and it's not going to happen tonight. So um, Israel in relations with the region and the world. Piece of cake. What do we got? 15 minutes. Um, Larry, are you going to kick us off again? Um, we're going to try and keep your openings a little shorter because there's, um, and we'll see how much you cover in your openings and we'll have questions. We'll try to keep it rolling. So right. thank you. So it's already November 9th in Israel, the 79th anniversary of Kristallnacht, which began the ultimate brutalization of the Jews of Europe. Six million murdered, and now a reborn state with six million Jews and growing. In a remarkable moment of remembrance, three Israeli Air Force F-15s, Eagles, flew over Auschwitz-Birkenau, symbolizing from tragedy to triumph. Hitler's final solution failed. Jews had power, never again to be stateless victims. Jewish defense wears a uniform. And the answer to annihilation is air superiority. It's frankly a miracle of history and an astonishing accomplishment to witness the bravery and brilliance of the Israel Defense Forces, 51% of whose officers are women. New Israeli soldiers have long held their swearing-in ceremony on Masada to empower each new soldier with a solemn understanding of Jewish history. Each is given a Hebrew Bible and their gun, and they proclaim together Masada will not fall again. Israel's armored corps today holds ceremonies at Latrun, site of the bloody battle of the 7th Armored Corps in 1948, Israel's victory against multiple Arab armies. Israel's paratroopers now hold their swearing-in ceremony at the Western Wall in commemoration of the Six-Day War in which the Kodel and Eastern Jerusalem were liberated. The Jewish world, on the eve of the 67 war, held its breath during the nerve-wracking weeks until Israel's lightning victory, securing its survival and attracting global Jewish admiration. A mere six years later, the state's sense of confidence and invulnerability crumbled in the 73 Yom Kippur War. Israel's one bitter enemy remains. The Arab League slash the Organization of Islamic Conference slash the revived Islamic Jihad, ISIS, and terror organizations. Spend a few minutes at Palestinian Media Watch to understand the generational pedagogy which incites very rough feelings amongst Palestinian youth who are not well served by this. Today, Israel must defend 10 borders. Syria, Lebanon, Jordan, Egypt, the Red Sea, the Mediterranean Sea, the Gulf of Aqaba, the Sinai Desert, Gaza, and the West Bank. Land, air, and sea. Underground tunnels, a major one of which was just blown up by Israel uh, in the Gaza Strip. 
Strategic planners in Israel must therefore plan for multiple front wars, weapons of mass destruction by terror states and or their proxies. Finally, Iran remains the major existential threat. Ideologically inspired theocracy, promoting a fatwa against the Jewish state, carving death to Israel on their missiles, which can now reach the 1,250 kilometers to Israel. I wrote in the Jewish Journal uh, a couple weeks ago, my catalog of Iranian violations of the Iran nuclear agreement, which includes collaboration with North Korea, ballistic missile launches, nuclear weapons research and development, and blocking of IAEA inspectors. Iran is planning on building a military airfield in Damascus via their ally Assad in Syria, its own naval pier in the port of Tartus. Israel is being threatened by Iran. Two major changes in the Middle East, however, are positive. The Arab Spring revolutions of a few years ago, 2011, confirmed the view of many of us who are veterans of the Gulf War debates. Arabi is not incapable of reform, democratization, and trade, and even alliance. The Sunni states may start to get the message that autocracy at home and Israel bashing as policy has grown really old. People, young people, want freedom. That is universal. And they want what Israelis have, a better life. And two, the Israeli-Saudi connection, both private and public, is growing rapidly as the Saudis certainly feel threatened by the Iranians. Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, MBS as he's known, visited Israel secretly, I guess not that secretly, in September. There is some progress with the Sunni states, even while, sadly, at the Israeli judo competition and others, when the Israeli victor reached out his hand, the competitor from Saudi Arabia turned his back. Danielle? You want me to just... Do you want to jump in or you want me to just... Uh... Well, th- first of all, thank you. That was that was really wonderful background. Um, I think the big story right now, obviously, is how sustainable is this uh, Gulf alliance that Israel has with some of the Gulf states mm-hmm. and what's happening in Saudi Arabia. And I sort of see in events of the last week uh, wondering, I mean... What's interesting is that all of a sudden, you know, Netanyahu's been the only one beating the anti-Iran drum for so long, so long, and nobody was picking up on it. And now all of a sudden, he has these allies in the Arab Gulf states who are also beating the anti-Iran drum. And so everything that Israel, everything I think Israel really wanted the U.S. to come forward and do as far as making it difficult for Iran to pursue um, their goals is now, they're now finding this, this alliance with the Gulf states. So the question is, 
how is that going to play out? I don't know the answer. Um, what kind of an invisible hand is Israel playing? And even the events that we've seen unfold in the last week, we have the prime minister of Lebanon resigned, which was a big coup. And obviously the prince in Saudi Arabia did this massive cleanup and, you know, uh, arrested tons of members of the royal family. So no one really knows what's going to happen. But the question is, what are the goal? What are the mutual goals? What do they really want to achieve? And then what happens after that? What happens after that? Because I go back to what Larry says. When you have powerful interests that have mutual interests, right? The, the, the enemy of my enemy is my friend or whatever. But then what happens when they, they, they achieve these goals? Is that a sustainable alliance into the future if you have um, athletes and competitors who can't even shake the hand of an Israeli? So that takes care of the enemy of the enemy is my friend. And what have you done for me lately? Um, so we'll just skip over that one. Didn't mean to steal your line. Um, and with a shortage of time, I guess we're not going to ask about Iran because that's, that's a major issue. And you can all read um, in the Jewish Journal, Larry Greenfield's piece, and there was a counterpiece to it. So you can really see two arguments about um, should we keep the deal, should it be fixed. So I want to dig on, on, on two really easy questions in a short amount of time. So the first one is that the Trump administration is only the latest in a long, seemingly never-ending attempt by the U.S. and the Europeans to push a two-state solution onto Israel and the Palestinians. So my question is, do either of you think the two-state solution is still viable or even a good idea? May I jump in? Sure. Okay. So the idea of two states has merit. That's what the UN proposed, remember, in 47. And the Jews said yes, and the Arabs said no. And then multiple times, compromise and solution was offered, most prominently by Bill Clinton in 2000, and Arafat walked away. So the idea of a peace process, uh, negotiations, and a final settlement is not a unique idea. And in fact, creative minds work on this. We know what water rights might look like, secure and just borders, land swaps, demilitarized a Palestinian state perhaps. None of this is particularly new, nor offensive. The problem is, it doesn't appear at the moment that the Palestinians are organized to be um, a successful, peaceful state next to Israel. In fact, I would say that the Gaza experiment shows, which turned into Hamastan, a terror enclave, that it probably would be a bad idea to have Judea and Samaria at this time being a Palestinian state. Because unlike Gaza, which has a short border with Israel, relatively controllable by Israel, flat land, Judea and Samaria overlooks in a matter of meters if not just a few miles, Israel's ports and airports and command and control systems. I also don't think that the Palestinians really want a state right now. I don't imagine that that state would be fair to women or to gays or have civil rights and human rights. It would be another Islamic non-democratic state. At this time, therefore, I don't suppose most Israelis 
or most Americans endorse now, tomorrow, a Palestinian state. The idea has merit. I think it would have to be earned. So I think there is no solution but a two-state solution, putting aside the demographic issue and how that would impact the, um, the future of Israel. If it were to be a one-state solution, you either have you either have Israel becoming a, a fully apartheid state, um, or you're gonna you're gonna get outvoted of your own in your own government. So the question now, obviously the. The facts on the ground suggest that this is not an ideal time for a solution. Um, but I think that we have to be bold on this. And I think we have to continue to push Israeli leaders to negotiate. I'm not, you know, the big story that we haven't talked about at all is that, you know, you have a prime minister in Israel right now who's the longest serving prime minister and who is mired in so many corruption scandals right now that a lot of people have lost faith in his ability to actually uh, get things done because um, he has to, and all, his, all, of his, all the people around him, his ministers are getting implicated. Um, so it's a really challenging time, but I think that we have to continue to press for a two-state solution because when you have a people that says they are a people and they want a state, that needs to be honored. Like, to me, that's the bottom line. It's not up to us to say you don't get to have a state. If the Palestinian people have decided, whenever they decided, that they are a people and they, have a, they want a state, they have a right to have a state. I wouldn't deny that to them, and I wouldn't deny it to anyone else. So a little back and forth, if we may. Go ahead. So I'm a big fan of national liberation movements. I think the Kurds deserve a state. I think Tibet deserves a state. Um, the Pakistanis deserve a state. The Indians have a state. There's lots of movements. The Palestinians are actually not the largest of hoped-for national liberation movements or states. <coughs> Israel made withdrawal after withdrawal, compromise after compromise. It was not reciprocated. The PLO charter still exists. Things actually have gotten worse. The PA has now made reconciliation with Hamas out of Gaza. I don't think we need another Muslim-majority tyranny state, a terror state. That, by the way, Iran is now friends with Hamas, even though Shiites and Sunnis normally wouldn't get along. I don't think the Palestinian statehood claim rises to the level of the Tibetans who are peace-loving, so, who don't have a charter which calls for the destruction of China on its border. So I, 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 I disagree with that wholeheartedly. Um, but I, you know, I also reject the idea that because it hasn't worked in the past, it can't work in the future. Like the nature of progress and the nature of humanity evolving is the fact that we've we've sometimes messed up, we haven't gotten it right, we try again and we do better. I mean, God knows we, there are things in this country that we're learning every day, we have to improve and we have to work to make better. That's the nature of being a human being, that's the nature of civilization and society. So yes, I agree with you, um, there have been many deals and if, if, the, if the political will was there, I mean, I think for a long time they thought they weren't taking Israel seriously. They were hoping still that maybe Israel was just going to disappear. I think it's clear now. You're seeing that by these alliances with the Gulf states. I think it's clear now to the Palestinians that Israel is not going anywhere. So your wishful thinking needs to go out the door. We're not going anywhere. It's not disappearing. Um, and I think they have to, but I also think, 
you know, Netanyahu has not shown himself to be a leader whose primary interest is in creating a solution to the conflict. So when you have the leader of Israel who has not done, not done very much at all to assert himself in that direction, you what else is going to happen? And not only that, but a couple of weeks ago, Prince Turkey Al-Faisal of Saudi Arabia came to Los Angeles and spoke during a Middle East forum. Um, I think it was the Israel... What was it? The Israel... Right, the Israel Policy Forum. And, you know, he was saying, look, there's a lot of, there's a lot of goodwill towards this right now, and you have a lot of Arab states that, wanna, that want to come to the table, that will help facilitate this effort. He was really, he said, look, let's go back to the, the Arab Peace Initiative. We can negotiate everything. Everything is negotiable, but the will is there, the desire is there. So this is what we're hearing. I mean, we've never heard this before. When, at, when, when in your lifetime did you hear of a prince of Saudi Arabia coming to a synagogue in Los Angeles to talk about making peace between Israel and the Palestinians? So for everything in the past that hasn't worked out, there are new things. Like we're in a new world today, and we need to go forward, and we need to, uh, we need to build bridges. So, so I think that you both have done an excellent job articulating the conundrum. I don't want to pin um, hope and despair on the two of you because that's unfair, but I will pin that on the current situation for peace in the Middle East. Um, it's American characteristic to be hopeful, you know, yet there's reason for despair as well. So um, I'd like to ask one more question in this area. We need to move on. I want to encourage people, if you have questions, if you want to write them down, please do so. We can get them picked up. Um, Rebecca's back here. Um, I know we're running late because we, we got late started. Um, Dane or others, I mean, she's got a basket right there. Um, this is a tough question. really want a short answer. Um, um, You're killing us. So on the region in the world, there's one other thing I want to ask about because I promised people in those emails that we were going to tackle the tough issues, right? So what about the charges that Israel uses disproportionate military responses or preemptive military strikes against terrorist targets. Israel's always getting creamed in the press uh, by the actions that it takes. Well, first of all, Israel's always getting creamed in the press because there is a lot of anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism that remains in the world. So Israel is held to an unfair double standard in almost every single thing it does. Now, that doesn't mean that it doesn't sometimes use... Now, the question of exaggerated force is an interesting question, right? Because you don't have two sides that have equal weaponry, equal capabilities, equal armies. So, of course, it's going to be disproportionate because one has an established and one of the world's best, most competent militaries where every single citizen of the country is conscripted into the service and this is part of the national culture. So, of course, it's going to be uneven. Um, do I believe in my heart of hearts that Israel tries its darndest to avoid civilian casualties and to do the right thing? Yes, I do. Yes, I do. And I think we've seen many examples of that. Mistakes are made. Um, that happens in war. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, it's an unfortunate reality of the situation, which is that you have two people going to war who don't, who, who, uh, they're not coming at it with the same, it's not really, a, it's not, I mean, philosophically, Marley, it's a fair fight, but in terms of actual resources, it's not necessarily a fair fight.
Okay, so Larry, I know you're a veteran. I know you're a military analyst. Um, is there anything briefly to add? Um, because I want to just say to our audience that um, we have one more section we want to cover, the United States and the relationship with American Jewry. Um, I see questions being proffered that Michelle's going to filter through. So um, with your pleasure, we'll go till 8.45, which is longer than we anticipated. Um, but we got to keep it pithy. Yeah. So the tactic of the enemy matters, and the rules of engagement matter. The enemy uses civilians to protect their weapons. They use civilians as human shields. They hide in hospitals and schools. Israel uses weapons to protect civilians. And as Danielle thoughtfully said, they go door to door. And sometimes Israeli mothers get a knock on the door. Your son or daughter's life was lost because we use so much care while at war that we didn't start, we didn't launch, for example, in Gaza, to protect civilians. I actually come at the question from the right, not from the left, but nobody ever asked this question. How about not enough force being used? How about the mistakes Israel makes when it withdraws unilaterally from Gaza, which was turned into a terror state? How about the unilateral withdrawal from southern Lebanon, which was not widely popular, by the way, in Israel, and now there's 150,000 rockets that loom over all of Israel, not just the north of Israel. How about the threatened withdrawal from the Golan Heights? Do you think that would have been a good idea? Now with the Syrian civil war for six years, that would have probably been a blunder. How about the trading of thousands of terrorists in jails, mass murderers, for the dry bones of one Israeli dead heroic, sacred soldier. There's a pretty strong case to make that Israel has made many choices and decisions not to fight hard enough because it's constrained by Europe, the media, anti-Semitism, a rough neighborhood, and sometimes pressure from the United States. So I could certainly make a case that Israel doesn't use enough force at times. <laughs> <coughs> Excuse me. Okay, so this takes us to our final place on this journey, which is where we want to address the changing nature of the U.S.-Israel relationship and, more importantly, the concerns about the changing nature of the relationship between American Jewry and Israel. What's the question? So... Um, <laughs> I got questions, or if you have some comments you want to make. I mean, I think that one of the big things that we want to really talk about is the collapse of historical bipartisanship. Um, and I think another important question, um, which was brought to me, has to do with how can American Jews who love and support Israel but have a strong disagreement with the current government of Israel how do they reconcile those and how do they best support Israel? That's what democracy is, by the way. Like, we're citizens of a democracy, so 
we're citizens of the United States, and I often have criticisms of my government, and I feel completely comfortable airing those criticisms. I don't know why there's this new thing in the Jewish community where, like, we have a lot of red lines all of a sudden. There are all these conversations we cannot have. There are all these ways we cannot talk to each other. Um, I, I'm actually moderating a panel on Sunday for the the Federation GA that's taking place, and I'm doing the political panel, so I'm interviewing a journalist from the New York Times and the LA Times and Politico. And when I had my early conference call with the organizers of the GA to, to discuss the content of the panel, there was a lot of concern, like, let's not offend Trump too much, and let's not do this, and let's not do that, and oh, maybe we don't want to talk about white nationalism so much, and but we should talk about the rising threat to Jews in America, and things like that. So I'm really concerned that, like, we've lost the ability to have civil discourse with one another. You should be able to criticize. That's what being that's what being an informed citizen is. And even though we may not all be citizens of Israel, we are all, we are the people Israel, and this is our homeland. So I think as long as it's constructive and it's with love and it's with a goal in mind of, of improving the circumstances, then I think the criticism is absolutely essential. And I think, I mean, I'm a journalist, and to me the role of a journalist is always to to hold power to account. So I don't care who's in power. Anyone in power should be should be looked at um, and investigated um, ruthlessly. So I don't see why Israel should be any exception to that. I think the more talking, the better. I'm afraid that we're not doing enough talking and we're not doing enough nuanced talking. We have opinions and okay. that. So that's so Larry, I know that you have some thoughts on uh, the bipartisanship issue and um, the fact that Israel is becoming a left-right divide in America. Um, would you like to share a couple thoughts on that? Sure. Well, first of all, I endorse everything you just said about being able to talk and agree and disagree and challenge those in power. Absolutely. There is this incredibly rich bipartisan tradition in the United States, almost a love affair with Israel. Long before it was a reborn state, the settlers to colonial America said, we are founding here a new Zion. They were Zionists. Their names were from the Bible. They adopted the um, liberation uh, from Egypt as a potential logo and motto of the United States. Jefferson and Adams and Franklin thought that should be the logo, is crossing the Red Sea. Uh, The Restorationists, a very long tradition of Christians and others in the United States believed in a restored Jewish people to their ancient homeland. Every American president touted the moral. That's not true, though. Eisenhower, Reagan, there was a real switch. Like Dennis Ross wrote an amazing book about this, about the switch in U.S. policy towards Israel. It wasn't always true that U.S. was friendly to Israel. There was a switch in the middle of the Reagan administration when there was the bombing of the embassy in Lebanon, and then all of a sudden Israel was seen more as as a partner as opposed to a problem, whereas vice versa was true previously. Eisenhower was one of the most unfriendly presidents to Israel in history. So I have his quotes here. Quote him away, but the policies speak for themselves. So she's referring to the Suez crisis. And to his credit, Eisenhower said later in the 60s, the biggest mistake I made in my entire military or political career was not siding with Israel in 1956. But I stipulate 
There have been moments, even though I can give you quotes from every president, even Jimmy Carter, <laughs> had nice quotes about the bond of brotherhood, the moral, military, trade, economic, friendship, alliance between the United States and Israel. There have been bumps in the road. The biggest bump in the road of all, I believe, was President Obama's bump in the road. And I won't go chapter and verse. I promise you I can. The UN vote was just the latest. The Iran decision was another. There was a tactical decision made by Barack Obama that he wasn't going to ally anymore with Christians and Republicans and mainstream thought. He had a different idea called linkage. He thought he could solve the problems of the Middle East by orienting our policy toward the Shiite Islamic Republic of Iran and not so much toward Israel and the Sunni states. And he did a lot of stuff that a lot of people didn't like. We don't have to go into that right now. It has been a pretty rich and beautiful bipartisan tradition. Truman is the one who said, I had faith in Israel before it was established. I have faith in it now. The United States was the first nation to recognize the new Jewish state 11 minutes after its proclamation. The most honored American president in Israel is another Democrat, John F. Kennedy. There really was a bipartisan tradition. Labor unions in our country were pro-Israel. Martin Luther King Jr. was very pro-Israel. And he shut down some elements in the 60s already in the black community of hostility to Jews in the Jewish state. Something very bad has happened. It's most best described, I wrote, uh, here we go, Dr. Robert Wistrick, one of the foremost scholars of anti-Semitism in Israel. In his 29th book, called From Ambivalence to Betrayal, The Left, the Jews, and Israel. It's a deeply instructive study. If you're taking notes, take a look at that book. Um, more readily available to everybody is Josh Moravtik, a fellow in Washington, D.C. He wrote, Making David into Goliath, How the World Turned About Israel. He makes a quick uh, thesis. The Six-Day War of 67 turned Israel from victim to victor, less sympathetic in an era of decolonial and anti-Western movements. As Jesse Jackson put it, the rest against the West. Israel is seen by some on the left as white, as colonialist, as nationalist, as religious, and capitalist. Not real popular on today's college campuses. I think you'll agree. Um, 67, yeah. you want to stop there? Well, I actually want to, we, 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 I do, and I want, I want to use college campuses as a kickoff. Yep. Because I want to ask um, one question and then I have some great questions we're going to move to um, so and I get to ask this question because Dan and I have three kids on separate college campuses uh, fortunately they all have thriving Jewish populations um, but recently I heard Professor Alan Dershowitz speak um, who he is a proud Democrat a um, avowed liberal and a strong supporter of Israel and he stated that the goal of BDS supporters is not to pass and win resolutions. It's to poison the minds of future leaders. So BDS is losing all the battles in legislatures and on campus, but it's winning the wars. So what can be done with respect to the battle to delegitimatize Israel 
and to affect what's going on with the next generation and younger minds. So That's an I easy one, right? I don't want to speak for the left. I'm not part of the left. There are wonderful liberal, even left Jews who are very pro-Israel. And they've got a lot on their plate. It's not fun for them. At the Dyke March in Chicago, the Jews were kicked out. Something very, very, very nasty and wrong exists on the left regarding Jews, Judaism, Israel, and the case for Israel. This is true because you have the conflation of a lot of different... Now, all of a sudden, to be in the progressive movement, you have to take on you know, multiple causes and they all get conflated into one. In order to be labeled a progressive, you have to support this and this and this and this, this, and you need to disavow the things that we don't, we don't see as fitting into this camp. And, and Zionism is one of them because there is a, there is an alliance with the, you know, Palestinian self-determination. So it's, it's, it's certainly changed the atmosphere. Um, for Jews on campus and for a lot of people that ally themselves with the progressive movement. Um, I don't have the answer to that except to say that the best way to counteract what's happening on college campuses from the perspective of the Jewish community is to raise Jewish kids and to educate your children Jewishly and to bring them to Israel and to implant the seeds for them, um, to educate them, to show them what loving Israel and being in a relationship with Israel is. Um, you, it doesn't, but, but I also want to, I also want to say a really important point is which all the way on the right, you can't criticize Israel at all. There's no criticism. Israel can only do good. Israel is like this you know, pie in the sky, complete, you know, it's this complete kind of idolatry of Israel that I think is equally unhealthy, as is this affliction on the left, whereby Israel does everything wrong. Okay, so I think that we're seeing this happen on both sides. I don't think this is a problem of the right or of the left. It's a problem of extreme politics and polarization on both sides. So we need to be very careful about putting the blame on one side or the other. Um, it is true that Israel was a bipartisan issue for a long time. And I give APAC actually, it's a, your history is, um, you're choosing which quotes you'd like to share. But the fact is, you didn't have a truly pro-Israel president until about Bush. Okay, um, there were all kinds of weapons bans. We didn't, Reagan reversed a selling arms, I mean, wouldn't sell arms to Israel and all kinds of things have happened in history. So it hasn't always been so rosy. Um, but APAC did a brilliant job of making it a bipartisan issue for a long time. Now it's changing. Okay, I don't want to go on anymore. Um, okay, and, and I know that, you know, Larry is ready to put on his um, executive <laughs> director of the Reagan Legacy Foundation hat, um, <laughs> but we're not going to let you. Um, so we're going to try and jump to some questions Let's from some audience our questions. audience. Yes. Um, and Let me some just great... say in, in one sentence, I didn't say that every president has always been perfect on Israel. But overwhelmingly, from the very beginning of our founding, through every presidency, you can find very supportive trade, military alliance. Reagan is the one who created the strategic alliance where we would defend Israel if it were attacked. And as I said, there were many Democrats who have been very pro-Israel as well. Of course, there were uh, the AWACS sale under Reagan upset uh, the pro-Israel community. Yes, there have been moments of disagreement between Israel and the United States. But overwhelmingly, luckily, it's very foundational to the United States. 
I think it's very deeply rooted in the heart of the United States to see Israel as our brother democracy. That's true. Yeah. Okay, so um, we're not going to get to all these questions. Many are great questions that address issues that have been touched on. One issue that was not touched on directly um, is that we haven't yet addressed the settlement issue. Um, additional settlements began um, early on. Um, how do we proceed with Israel's continuing? And I will, I will say that I read today, I think there was 240 building permits in a um, gilo, which the article referred to as um, East Jerusalem. It's really a major settlement block outside of Jerusalem and some Arab neighborhoods. You know, 240 building permits is a very small tract development in Southern California. Um, settlement issues. So, first of all, most people don't realize how complex the settlement issue is. For example, do most people in this room know that the Jewish quarter in East Jerusalem is technically a settlement, right? We don't think of it as a settlement, but technically it is. So we, one of the things we have to do in the conversation on settlements is we really have to know what we're talking about because there are settlements that have been around forever and ever and ever that are not as problematic, and then there are some of the new ones that are that are strategically developed to make it difficult to have a, con a, p a potential future contiguous Palestinian state. Then there's the idea that they're doing all of these settlements so that they have something to swap, etc. So the settlement is a very complicated issue, and we don't have time to get into all the details of it now. Um, some of it is some of it is, is is ugly and not nice, and some of the settler behavior is ugly and not nice. But then there are a lot of settlements that have been functioning beautifully for many years and are like integrated into the landscape, including the Jewish quarter. So we have to be careful when we use settlements to just blanket talk about all the settlements because they're different. I appreciate that answer. When American veteran Taylor Force was murdered, the murderers shouted, "Settler, settler!" So at one level, we're all settlers. And people in Jerusalem and Tel Aviv are called settlers too. When the UN passed the awful um, Resolution 2334, which the United States did not um, oppose, it singled out Israeli communities built post-1967 in the disputed territories as the settlement enterprise. So look where we've gone. Eugene Rostow, the key scholar, and author of Resolution 242, organized that the disputed territories would have to come to resolution through compromise and negotiation with secure and just borders. All of a sudden, that became occupation, which became illegal settlements, which became apartheid. This is just a political question at this point. I don't think there's a legal... Um, international law objection that it has merit to settlement policy. By the way, Bibi Netanyahu stopped for one year any settlements when everybody threw a fit because Israel was building second-story bathrooms in apartments in Jerusalem, as you noted. Very complicated legal question. The political question, though, I think is part of the campaign against Israel, especially at the U.N., Okay, so to be respectful of everyone's time, we're going to try and do two or three more questions. I just 
Um, the questions run the gamut. You know, where is Jordan in this, the 1947 UN mandate? Excuse me for a second, but I just, I want, I just want to appreciate what you said, and I also want to suggest that you do something like this with your, with your children and your teens, because that would be, in a, I mean, not us, obviously, something more engaging and age-appropriate, but to have conversations about Israel and for them to talk about it, I think would be a wonderful thing. Can you join our committee? <laughs> Anything. Larry, you can too. Can I be um, a member too? Okay. Um, so um, this is humbling. This is terrific. Uh, sorry? Or maybe posting the answers online. Um, that would be quite the blog. I mean, Danielle does write the, uh, the Hollywood Jew blog. Um, so I don't know if we can go different directions, but what I'm going to do is I'm, tech savvy of us um, to do a, to uh, here, do here's a, what, here's what we're going to do. Online. I'm going to take a moment. I'm going to mention a few of the issues. We're going to let Danielle and Larry close it out with, um, a couple minutes to either touch on any of these issues or to share any other closing thoughts. Um, we don't want the cookies to get cold. Uh, <laughs> so with that, um, so there was a question on Jordan, which is an interesting one because where's up? King Abdullah in all of this, and um, you know, a place for the Palestinians in Jordan. It seems that Israel's economy is flourishing, but its politics are a standstill. Um, is there a hope for movement politically in Israel? Um, can we explain Hashomer Hatzair movement, which I don't know what it Hashomer is. Hatzair, that's uh, started the, in Greece. the youth national socialist um, uh, camp movement, right? Am I right? Um, the, yeah. the status of Ethiopian Jews, um, which is a huge success while also having been a challenge integrating um, an ethnic minority into Israel. Um, and I promise not to try and comment on any of these throughout the evening. Dana, I'm doing okay. Thank you. Um, we talked about the settlements. Are Jewish progressives who castigate Israel for humiliating Palestinians um, and using disproportionate fast force true Zionists, or are they self-hating Jews and anti-Semites? <laughs> uh, is it appropriate for American Jews to publicly criticize Israel, its policies, and its leaders? So I think we talked about that. Um, and then there was a question regarding Trump and his visit to Israel and um, seemingly a friend of Israel and well-liked by Israel. Oh my God, how do we even that we didn't address, which always gets asked, and it's here. Why is Israel's PR so bad? <laughs> so with that, I turn it over to you. Um, Danielle, uh, no, you get the closing word. So Larry, we're going to try and keep it to two minutes. We're going to wrap this up. Um, we're going to bring it home. We're counting. So regarding Jordan. Because everyone has to go home and watch Powder tonight. So. <laughs> so regarding Jordan, I led a delegation to Jordan. It was the most interesting moment I ever had in the Middle East, where I've been 30 times. Uh, we were with the defense establishment of Jordan, and there's a red phone, literally a red phone. And in the middle of our meeting and consultations, the phone rings. And the Jordanian defense minister's face turns white. They are on pins and needles. They've been a miraculous ally of Israel, a great
great friend of the United States. They're really threatened. And as a state next to Israel, just to its east, they are a buffer and a border. But it is just really true that we maybe don't always appreciate how complicated, how dangerous the Middle East is. It's a very, very tough neighborhood. That doesn't mean that we're not allowed to criticize. There were a couple of questions there about speaking your voice and calling out your concerns or complaints. Uh, Danielle said something about Republicans seem unified about Israel and very uh, challenging word. I offered a few tonight. I don't think they've been tough enough in some instances. I think they were unilaterally withdrawing maybe when they shouldn't have yet. Uh, I'm going to close with this. Oh, and regarding Trump, um, you, have to, you have to see, uh, obviously, good body language, friendship between Bibi Netanyahu and President Trump. That's personal. Um, he did say he moved the U.S. Embassy to Jerusalem. That hasn't been done yet. Very big old debate about that. Right. And also, I heard that Jason Greenblatt has been there like almost nonstop, and he's very seriously going back and forth between the two sides, trying. So, so apparently, there's stuff going on. The deal, the art of the deal, the deal makers trying to make the biggest deal. Um, I have a few books to recommend. I don't know if anyone's taking notes, but for the record, if this was taped or videotaped. Um, we mentioned Startup Nation, a great book about the economy, along with Israel 21C, a website to follow Israel's superb technological innovation. Um, one of the founders and contributors, Jonathan, are you still here? Yeah. I need to call out Jonathan Barak for doing amazing work. Kudos to you. Uh, and I'm going to... And I have to... Excuse me, I have to interrupt for one other second for a commercial, which is super important because we talked about youth. So Israel has taken hundreds of people and hundreds of youth to Israel on family trips. There is another KI family trip that's going this summer. There's an information session, I think, next November week. November 14th. November 14th. Um, as a young man, when I spoke at synagogues, I said, if you want your children to grow up and have a strong Jewish identity, your children or your grandchildren, send them to Israel. So I hope that some of the members here um, will consider joining that trip. Um, I'm sorry, back to Larry. No problem. Um, I was going to reference the entire library of Norman Podhoritz, who was very instructive in my intellectual um, path. He wrote an article in 1989 in Commentary, predicting the terror wars, the Antifadas, etc. Uh, Michael Oren, who's a liberal American Jew who became a star in Israel, is now a member of Knesset. He wrote a very important book called Ally, which documented the Obama's eight years vis-a-vis Israel. Also incredible. Um, George Gilder's book, The Israel Test, is a lovely book. He's a very important thinker. He basically said you can judge nations of the world by how they treat Israel, with all of its flaws. Um, Carolyn Glick from the right is an important thinker, major writer and blogger. Um, she's a critic of the two-state solution and the Oslo peace process. She wrote a book called The One-State Solution. Ken Levin's book, the Oslo Syndrome is the best psychologist, a Harvard-trained psychologist, the best profile of how Israel dealt with sort of a history of oppression and, and attack and persecution. Ruth Weiss is an elegant Jewish woman scholar. She's written a book uh, called Jewish Power, about how Israel handles being the first um, Jewish community to have weapons and an army in 2,000 years. Anything you can read by Dory Gold, who is a definitive scholar of both the Saudis 
and the UN and the incredible history of Jerusalem, and he's the president of the Jerusalem Center for Public Affairs. Uh, and finally, the writings of Danielle Barron, David Suisa, and even on occasion, yours truly in the Jewish Church. <laughs> Conservative and right bent. Um, 
we're grateful that um, to hear all the voices, and I consider this my a wonderful success. Um, thank you.